what we're doing is just, believe it or not, hitting the high, the really high points. Not there's there's so much more. Before we start, let's say let's say a prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Please watch over all of those who couldn't make it tonight. Our hearts are with them. We ask that you be very present with them as they go through what they're going through. And Lord, be with us tonight because each of us has our own private struggles and the things that we that we don't understand in, in our lives and the things that we fight and fight and fight and can't seem to get over and, and the difficult people in our lives. And Lord, we ask that that somehow you make what we study tonight be completely relevant to where we are today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really a blast for me to introduce you guys to the characters in the Bible. And there are some serious characters in the Bible. Um, One of them that comes to mind is Isaiah. Did do you all know anything um, bizarre that Isaiah did? How about prophesy naked? How about Hosea? Do you know what Hosea did that was bizarre? He married a prostitute. He knew she was a prostitute. Married her anyway. Did she continue to be a prostitute? She continued to be a prostitute. And how about how about Gideon? You might know that one. What about Gideon? Do you know what he did? He sent all, almost all of his soldiers home just before the battle. There's tons of characters in the Bible. And we're going to see Jeremiah do some weird things when we start talking about Jeremiah when we get there. But as crazy as it sounds, all three of those men that I told you about, Isaiah going naked, Hosea, Hosea, that's a different person. H-O-S-E-A, Hosea marrying the prostitute, Gideon sending all the soldiers home. All three of those men did those things at the instruction of God. And I know that those of you who are here last week remember the story I told about Ed and Evelyn. And, um, and you understand that If Evelyn had realized she was supposed to have a package of gloves instead of a package of panties, she wouldn't have gotten so offended over Ed's letter, right? And the Bible is the same way. If you, on the surface, look at, you know, a prophet going naked, a prophet marrying a prostitute, and and the captain of the army sending home the soldiers... You would, and, and it said God told them to do that, you might just close up the Bible and throw it in the trash and go on down the road. But you're taking it out of context. Okay? And so that's why we are doing what we're doing. These first three, it'll just be three lessons. This one is the middle one, and we'll finish up with the context stuff next week. But it is critical for you to be able to understand why God does the things he does and not look at it through from our perspective or from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective. So we paused in our story last week when Abraham was 99 years old. Now I want you to take a second right now and picture Abraham in your mind. You can picture Sarah too. She's 90. Okay. Now just start throwing out to me what, what, what comes to mind when you're picturing Abraham. Gray. Gray. Wrinkly. Larry King. Larry King. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I, we're, we're sitting in a room full of a uh, majority of us are white-skinned. Was your Abraham white? When you thought about Abraham, was he white? You know, you are so busted. Because Abraham was born near the border of Iraq and Iran. And he likely had a hooked nose, black eyes, curly black hair, okay, and beautiful olive skin. <coughs> Probably looked a lot like Jesus, as a matter of fact, who was not white either. You know? So part of what we need to, to overcome as we're going through this context is not only understanding the context from the 
from the historical point of view, from God's point of view, but we've got to overcome our preconceived notions of how things were and who these people were. Because I guarantee you, if you went to the school of Cecil B. DeMille, some of the stories I'm going to tell you today are going to sound a lot different than the ones that you saw starring Charlton Heston. I'm going to tell you stories today. So it's going to, some of them you will recognize, but there's going to be bits of it I bet you you don't. Um, we're going to learn, we're going to, I'm going to tell you the story of a birth of a nation, the birth of Israel to be specific. We left off last week talking about circumcision and how it was the sign that God gave Abraham to signify that God would be Abraham's God and he, and God would be the God of Abraham's descendants forever. And we saw that circumcision was used by some cultures, not all, but some cultures as a rite of passage at puberty or in preparation for marriage. Often those things happened at the same time. Well, we, I passed around a picture last week showing that we know circumcision to be in practice at that time in Egypt. But apparently it was not common practice in the land of Canaan, which was where Abraham was settled, because neither Abraham nor any of the men in his household were already circumcised. It was something he had to do, and it set them apart, made them different from the peoples around them. Can you imagine what the other people around them thought, you know, when Abraham all of a sudden circumcised everybody? And actually, I'm sure it came as a shock to Abraham when God suggested that this was what he needed to do. He didn't exactly suggest it. He said, this is your this is your part of the deal. But Abraham understood, I'm sure, after God explained it to him. Now, I don't know if I was Abraham. I might not have stuck around to get explained to. I might have run the other way. But, but God explained to Abraham that it was a, an outward sign of a marriage covenant, essentially. It's like what we do when we give and exchange rings in a wedding ceremony. You know, the ring is a sign of our love and fidelity. That's what circumcision is. It's a sign of our love and fidelity and God's love and fidelity towards us. So from that point forward, all the males descended from Abraham were circumcised, but they were not circumcised as adults. They were circumcised as infants to signify that that child was entering into the already existing marriage covenant with God. And it became the responsibility of the entire community to teach that child how to walk with God and be blameless. So if you didn't take away anything from the first lesson but this, this is what you needed to take away. And that is that God sees his relationship with his people as a solemn marriage commitment. If you remember that, you're going to be able to see the events in the Bible from God's perspective. And that's a big help when it comes to trying to figure out why God does what he does. And in fact, if you flip through the Bible, the idea of our relationship with God being a marriage is explicitly stated from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's everywhere in the Bible. There is no way I could give you all of the scripture references that talk about that. But there's one that I did give you in your handouts, and that is Isaiah 54, 5. Isaiah is a big book of, a, of prophets. It's right after the Psalms and Proverbs, so you can open kind of to the middle of the Bible, and then it's, the, it's after Psalms and Proverbs is Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He was the one that went naked. He was a prophet who lived about 100 years before Jeremiah. Okay, And Isaiah 54, 5 says... For your maker is your husband. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This is the Lord speaking directly to Israel. He says, your maker is your husband. And my name is the Lord. So let's talk about, we've, we've done kind of Abraham and Sarah. So they're the top of the family tree. Okay, the, the, the father and the mother. Abraham and Sarah at ages 99 and 90 did in fact have a son the next year, just as the Lord promised. And they did name him He Laughs, which is Isaac in Hebrew. They had to name him He Laughs because they both laughed when the Lord told them that they were going to have a son next year. 
And Isaac grew up, and he had a son named Jacob. Now, Jacob was not a very savory character. Jacob lied. Jacob cheated. Jacob was a mama's boy. Jacob stole his twin brother's inheritance and his father's blessing by putting on a disguise so that his poor blind father would think he was his brother. And after he had done that, Jacob had to run for his life, literally, to keep his brother from murdering him. He was named Jacob appropriately because his name literally means he's pulling your leg. Jacob had tons of adventures, but one night Jacob dreamed he was wrestling with an angel all night long. Neither the angel nor Jacob could win, and eventually Jacob realized that he was actually wrestling with the angel of God, with God himself. And they wrestled, and they wrestled, and they wrestled. And finally, the angel of God said, Jacob, let me go. It's fixing to be daybreak. Time to stop. And Jacob said, no, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And so God blessed Jacob and changed his name to Israel, which means he struggles with God, which was an appropriate name for Jacob and an appropriate name for the nation of Israel that would be named after him. Jacob, who is now named Israel, had 12 sons, and I listed them there on your handout. All right? I circled the very last one I listed. His name is Joseph. Now, he's not the youngest. Benjamin was the youngest. Um, His mom, there were two mothers of these various boys, two the, the two favorites, though, were Benjamin and Joseph, and uh, um, their mom died giving Benjamin birth. But Joseph is the one that the story follows. Now, these 12 boys grew up and became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's where that comes from. They're the 12 sons of the guy named Israel. All right. But it wasn't smooth sailing. Unfortunately, those other 11 brothers hated Joseph's guts. And the reason they hated Joseph was not only was he his, the, their father's favorite, one of the two favorites, but Joseph has, had the um, poor judgment to have dreams in which he saw his brothers and his mother and his, and his father bow down to him. Bad enough to have the dreams, but then he went and told his brothers and his mother and his dad he had these dreams. They were not impressed, and there was no way these 11 brothers were going to take any chance at all that those dreams were going to come true. What the, the 11 brothers plotted to do was kill Joseph. Well, Reuben, who was the eldest um, of the brothers, talked them out of killing him um, and said, well, let's just throw him in a pit. Well, Reuben left. Well, while Reuben had had gone, the, the remaining ten brothers decided to sell Joseph into slavery. Because a slave, they were right on, remember I showed you how they were on a trade route last week? Well, a band of slave traders came by on their way to Egypt. They sold, sold Joseph as a slave to Egypt, and he was a teenager at that point. So through a a series of completely amazing events that you can find in Genesis 39, 40, and 41, those, those chapters are definitely worth reading, Joseph went from being a slave, he didn't go up, he went down. He went to prison after he was a slave, condemned to die. He went from prison all the way to being second in command of Egypt, prime minister of Egypt. That happened in one day. And um, it was by the Lord's hand. And part of that whole amazing deal was that Joseph was able to interpret dreams. And the, and the Pharaoh had had dream, uh, dreams about seven um, fat cows that got eaten up by seven skinny cows. And the skinny cows were still skinny after they ate the fat cows. And Pharaoh couldn't figure it out. The magicians couldn't figure it out. The wise men couldn't figure it out. They called up Joseph, and Joseph prayed, and the Lord told him what that meant. What that meant was Egypt was in the middle of seven years of surplus, and it was going to be followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph, as prime minister of Egypt, 
made, he taxed the Egyptians and made them bring grain to central areas in Egypt and store it. And they stored enough grain during the seven years of surplus to, to keep them for the seven years of famine. Well, when that famine hit, it was the worst famine that area had seen in a long time. And this is an area of the world that has famines fairly frequently. This was really, really bad. And it was so bad that nations from all around Egypt came to Egypt to beg for food. And one of the families that came to Egypt to beg for food was Joseph's 11 brothers. And Joseph recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And he played with them a little bit (laughs) Um, while he was deciding what to do. But in the end, instead of punishing them, he forgave them completely for how they had treated him. And he brought his brothers, their family, his father, all of them to Egypt to live in luxury. And he settled them in what is called the land of Goshen. And here on the map, here's Egypt, okay? Here's the Nile River. You see how at the delta of the Nile River, all right? See all that green part? That's the land of Goshen. He settled them in the very best part of Egypt, right up here in the north. I remember one day finding, walking in on one of my best friends, and she was stomping around the house. And this is a very even-tempered girl. You know, I'd never seen her lose her temper. What on earth are you doing? Well, turns out she was trying to break in her hiking boots for her honeymoon. Uh, You know, my idea of a honeymoon is like yours, Ashley. You know, I want to go someplace romantic, beaches, restaurants, dancing. You know, no. Her husband was going to take her to the back country of Colorado. She was going on a honeymoon where she couldn't even take a bath or wash her hair. You know, (laughs) I thought she was absolutely out of her mind that she was nuts to agree to a honeymoon like that. Well, you know, if you think of the covenant with Abraham as the marriage, we're in the honeymoon period now for Israel, okay? They've been moved to the land of Goshen. Well, things don't exactly go as planned. Things, in fact, begin to deteriorate. What happens is eventually Joseph dies and Egypt completely forgets about him. And they have Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh, new Pharaohs take over. But the memory of Joseph and the story of Abraham and the, uh, is passed down orally by the Israelites from generation to generation. But somehow, during this period of time, they, they lose their sense of the worship of God. And that kind of makes sense because they started out as 66 people when they arrived in Egypt in the land of Goshen during Joseph's time, but then they obeyed the Lord. What was that first part of the command of the blessing that the Lord gave us? You remember sex, Sex. be fruitful and multiply. They got that part really well. They, they, they were fruitful exceedingly. They were so fruitful that in the opening of the book of Exodus, the the Hebrew word used to describe how numerous they were is bone crunchingly strong, as in, you know, swarms of people. That's how many Israelites there were. Well, it was so bad, Pharaoh started to get scared. And he decided the Israelites were in danger of overrunning his country. He was worried about a military coup. So he made them slaves and forced them into hard labor. The Egyptians were brutal, they were ruthless, but no matter how cruel the Egyptians were to the Israelites, the Israelites kept on having sex, you know, and they kept on having babies and they kept on being fruitful and multiplying. And finally, Pharaoh got desperate and he ordered the midwives to kill all Israelite baby boys at birth. But God had other ideas. For one thing, the midwives simply wouldn't do it. The, the midwives, you know, let the boys live. They 
obviously couldn't let them all live, but they let the boys live enough that it got Pharaoh's attention and he called them on the carpet and they said, oh, well, you know, Israelite women are, are different than Egyptian women. They're not wimps. Israelite women have healthy babies, you know, and, and, and we, you know, the, the babies live. Well, there was one baby in particular that God had plans for, and you know his name. His name was Moses. Pharaoh's daughter was captivated by the baby Moses when she found him hidden in a basket in the river where she bathed. They didn't have bathrooms back then. Even the kings and the queens had to go down to the river to take a bath. And that's where she saw baby Moses in this little basket. And she fell in love with him and adopted him. And he was raised as an Egyptian prince in the royal court. But the nurse that they hired to take care of him was his own mother. And she made sure he knew he was an Israelite. And she told him about the Lord God. And when Moses was 40 years old, all right, same age as some of us, Moses saw an Israelite slave being cruelly beaten by the slave master. And Moses lost his temper. And he went to the defense of that slave, and in the ensuing fight, he killed the Egyptian. Prince or no prince, Moses had to flee the country. He ran for his life. He's 40 years old. He's been raised in the court, and now he has to flee. He he flees across the Sinai Peninsula here, which is not, this is desert here, you know, He didn't particularly have these kind of skills, okay? But he fled entirely across the Sinai Peninsula and into the northern part of what we now know as Saudi Arabia to what's called the land of Midian, which is right here. And he stopped in the land. He stopped running in the land of Midian. And there in the land of Midian, Moses settled for life. He got married, had a couple of boys. He learned how to be a shepherd. And you know what? He might have even forgotten the Israelites. But God didn't forget the Israelites. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25, tells us what happened. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Do you remember the covenant that God, that God remembered? It's in Genesis 15, 13, and 14. We looked at it last week. The covenant that God made with them said, No for certain, this is with Abraham, No for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. Well, that's been fulfilled. What country was it? Egypt, right? And they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. So we're looking for the fulfillment of these prophecies. This was prophesied to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. So now we want to see, is it going to happen? Well, God proceeded to make good on his promise. Poor Moses, poor, settled down, happy shepherd Moses is now 80 years old. (laughs) And life is about to change. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. But God called to him from a burning bush and sent him back to Egypt along with his brother Aaron to rescue the Israelites. By this time, the Israelites have largely forgotten God. He seemed irrelevant to their lives, but that's about to change. Israel is about to meet her God, her maker, her loving husband. He sent Moses to them with this message. The message is in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you. Redeem you means buying you back, ransoming you. God is going to buy them back. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. See, God's going to introduce himself to them by freeing them from slavery. He's going to say, this is how you're going to know I'm really God. I'm going to free you from slavery. All right. That's why God did this. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. So he's going to bring them to the promised land, the land he promised Abraham. He's going to give it to them as a possession. He says, I am the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've noticed a pattern here over the last couple of lessons, but the Lord always announces his intentions. Now, he doesn't always tell you exactly how he's going to do it. Doesn't always tell you what the details are, but he always tells us where he's going with you and what he's planning to do. And if the Lord says it, you can take it to the bank. It always comes to pass exactly like he says. May not be how we think it's going to be, but when it happens, we recognize it because he tells us in advance. He still tells us in advance. He always will tell you the choices you have. He will tell you the blessings associated with the path that he's prepared for you. And he'll tell you the consequences that will happen if you choose to go by another path. And the consequences are always things you would expect as the consequences of sin. Things like despair, death, pain, isolation. All right. Those are always the things waiting for you on the path that goes away from God. God's ways with men have not changed. He, has, he is still just as explicit with us today. He's made sure, if you think about it, that we know the blessings he's planned for us, as well as the death and the pain that evil will bring us. The choices are still plain, and the choices are still ours. So, if you were a slave in Egypt, and you were told the Lord was about to rescue you, it would seem like your reaction would be, Yahoo! Yay, let's have a party. We're about to be free. Didn't happen that way. Look at the very next verse. We just read Exodus 6, 8. Look at 6, 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites. He said exactly what the Lord told him to say. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. See, stop and think for a moment. What that's saying is that sometimes we're hurting so badly that we cannot hear God calling to us. We are bound up in our hopelessness and cannot hear God. And if you think about it, that's a perfect tactic for Satan. Because what happens if you have a real crisis in your life? You're in a car accident. The plane's crashing. You know, your child gets terribly ill. What do you do? You immediately run to God, right? You pray. You drop everything and you start praying. What did we do on 9-11? We started praying. You know, people who had never prayed, prayed on 9-11. So Satan doesn't go there with all of us as often as you might think he would. Instead, what he does is he wraps us up in our daily weight. He wraps us in despair. He wraps us in hopelessness. He tells us it can't be done. We can never overcome. We can never change. We can never do better. We'll always be bad. You know, life will never get better. We will continue to be broken. We will continue to hurt. That is Satan because he does it so subtly and he does it so often that it's like a spider wrapping a tiny silken thread around and around and around until he's got you completely bound. And that's where the Israelites were. What did God do when they rejected him like that? 
Was he hurt? Probably. Did he withdraw from them? Did he give them the silent treatment like we do when we're lovers? You know, and, and your lover does something to reject you, to cause you to feel rejected. A lot of times we give people the silent treatment. Well, no doubt Moses wanted to say, see God, I told you they wouldn't listen. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Midian to my wife and my kids. But God is patient and kind and loving and very long suffering. He did not leave the Israelites in their stubbornness and their pain. He understood their pain. He saw they had forgotten him. The reason they forgot him was because they lived in Egypt. And the people they lived among worshipped idols. They didn't worship God. God was not part of the culture. They were in a culture that expected you to go worship Isis, the god of magic, or Osiris, the god of the dead, or Ra, the sun god, or Amun, the god of creation. They have a whole pantheon of gods, and there was a temple on every street corner. There was no temple to the god. There was no place to worship. They were worked to the bone. They didn't have the time or the energy or the inclination, finally, to worship God. They just absorbed into the culture that they lived in. And God saw that. And so instead of giving up on them, he set out to woo them back to him. He set out to show them he was more powerful than any other of the so-called gods that they were worshiping. That he was more powerful than any magic or sorcery. And above all else, that he loved them and he wanted to bless them. God will go to extraordinary lengths to get us to love him and accept his blessings. In fact, part of the great gift of, that comes with Bible study is that it dawns on you what those blessings really are and how available to you they really are. It's not something you just pick up by going to church once a week. The kinds of blessings we're talking about, the life-changing blessings that we are reading about are the kind you only find with study it's a it's this is this stuff will change who you are so god god starts off with small miracles moses and aaron go to pharaoh's court tell him that god demands the release of the israelites pharaoh says god who <laughs> and then and 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 then then pharaoh says prove it so Aaron throws his staff down and it, in front of Pharaoh and it turns into a snake. Well, Pharaoh's magicians are not impressed. They scoff at him. And each one of Pharaoh's magicians throw down his staff and they each of their staffs turn into a snake. Of course, Aaron's snake ate up all their snakes before Aaron picked them back up and it became a staff again. But still, you know, it served to totally tick Pharaoh off. And um, he refused to listen to Moses and Aaron. So by what power did the other staffs? Good question. The question is, by what power did the other staffs become snakes? By the power of evil. There is power in sorcery and magic. That's why people get fooled by it. A lot. But it is not the same as God's power. Satan actually was very powerful angel. wasn't is a very powerful angel. He was given God-given powers. And the gift and the call of God are irrevocable, the Bible says. You stay gifted whether or not you use those gifts appropriately. There, Satan truly has power. And these magicians were operating in that power. Okay? Let's see what happened. All right, God ratchets up the miracles, or in this case, the plagues. In each, the point I want you to get about the miracles, one of them, is that in each and every case, the Lord told Moses what the plague was going to be and when it was going to happen. And Moses told Pharaoh, the Lord never does stuff without telling you he's going to do it. Because the whole point of doing it is so you know it's God. All right? 
if a tornado touches down out of nowhere, all right, it's not God. Unless God told you that the tornado was going to touch down out of, out of nowhere, all right? It's, it's just a force of nature, okay? People, a lot of times, attribute things to God that just aren't, are part of the physical laws of nature, okay? God can certainly use those physical things. But if God's dealing with you, you don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder where you stand with God. It's God's job to let you know where you stand with him, and he will do it. Okay? So you don't ever have to wonder. To start things off, Moses and Aaron went down to the Nile to where Pharaoh's taking a bath. And they turned the water into blood. And not only the water in the Nile turns to blood, all the water in all the ponds, all the water in all the reservoirs, and all the water standing in the cups, glasses, and jars in Egypt turns to blood. The Egyptians have to dig new water sources along the banks of the Nile in order to get drinking water. Okay, the Bible said. All the fish died. The river started to stink. It is way nasty. But... Pharaoh's magicians were able to do the same thing. A week later, the Lord covered Egypt with frogs. They had frogs in their bed, frogs in their food, frogs everywhere. Pharaoh's magicians were able to call up frogs too. They just had a little trouble making the frogs go away. So Moses let Pharaoh pick a time for the frogs to go away, just to prove it was not a coincidence, but that the Lord God and only the Lord God could make the frogs go away, because the magicians could not make those frogs go away. Pharaoh picked a time, Moses prayed, and the frogs all died at that time. Egyptians and Israelites picked up frogs, swept up frogs, piled up frogs. The whole land reeked of frogs. Then the Lord had Moses and Aaron bring forth gnats. I think they should have used mosquitoes like we have in Texas. But apparently gnats were what the deal was. Pharaoh's magicians tried to call up gnats too. Couldn't do it. So there is a limit to Satan's power, obviously, okay? which we knew because he was a created being. And God is on a mission here. God is, set, is out to prove that he is more powerful than any other God you can throw at him. So the magicians couldn't do this. Gnats were on everything. It says wherever there was dust in Egypt, there were gnats. That's a lot of gnats, because all I ever see in Egypt is dust when I look at the pictures. And the magicians even told Pharaoh that this was not magic, that this was the hand of God. But Pharaoh refused to bend to God's will and let the Israelites go. So the next time Pharaoh goes down to the Nile to bathe, Moses meets him there. You know, if I'm Pharaoh, I'm, I think I'm going to stop going down to bathe. You know, bad things happen when he goes down to the Nile. This time, Moses told him the Lord was going to send swarms of flies. But just so all of the Egyptians and all the Israelites would know it was not some, you know, force of nature, but it was really God, when the flies were going to come, it was only going to affect the Egyptians and not the Israelites. And that's what he did. God sent flies, completely inundated Egypt, except for the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. Pharaoh says, enough already. Make the flies go away, and I'll let you leave for three days. Which, at this point, that was all that Moses had asked for, was for them to be able to go for three days out into the wilderness to worship. So Moses said, okay, you can go for three days. Of course, when Moses prayed and the flies left, Pharaoh reneged on his promise. Then the plagues, rather than being just annoyances, began to involve death. The next plague was on the livestock. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died. Their horses, their donkeys, their camels, their cattle, their sheep, their goats died. 
but not one single animal belonging to the Israelites died. You know how we know? Because Pharaoh sent inspectors to the land of Goshen to check on him. And that's recorded in scripture. Still, Pharaoh would not relent. Then followed plagues of boils. That's like really horrible, skin-eating, terrible sores. Boils. The magicians couldn't stand up in court because they had boils when Pharaoh, I mean, when Moses walked in. And after that was a terrible plague of hail that killed every plant, animal, or human being that was left outside during the, it says the lightning and the thunder was the worst Egypt had ever seen since it had become a nation. Now this is stuff like in Revelation. Yeah, it is. In, and Lubbock, Texas too, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is like Revelation. Not that none of this affected Israelites. Pharaoh relented. Not only did he relent, he said, I have sinned. The Lord is right. I will let you go. But as soon as Moses prayed and the storm stopped, Pharaoh reneged on his promise. So it's obvious by this point that Pharaoh is never going to let those Israelites go. So the Lord decides to make an example of Pharaoh. And this is another principle we're going to run into often as we get to know the Lord. He can make the most evil situations. He can take those terrible, evil situations and redeem them. He transforms the situation. He turns them into opportunities to communicate his great love for his people, and that's exactly what he did this time. Uh, we're looking at at this point in Exodus 10, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said, I've decided to harden Pharaoh's heart so I, I may perform miraculous signs so you may tell your children and grandchildren how I performed my signs among the Egyptians so that you will know I am the Lord. That's the whole point of him doing this. That's up to the side. Okay. That's up to the side of hail. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So from this point on, we're not told whether the plagues affect the Israelites, but I assume they don't. You know, they haven't. And they're getting increasingly bad, and, and obviously you would assume that they're not affecting the Israelites. The next plague was an attack of locusts. Those are like voracious grasshoppers. Same result, Pharaoh relents, promises to let them go, then reneges on the promise. Then the Lord brought on Egypt a terrible plague of utter darkness. And after that plague... Moses, Pharaoh banished Moses from his presence on pain of death. It's over as far as Pharaoh is concerned. So now the time has come for God to act directly to free the Israelites. Pharaoh is not going to let it happen. It's going to take the direct hand of God, and it will have to be in spite of the Pharaoh. The people of Egypt are going to have to rebel against Pharaoh and let the Israelites go. That seems daunting, unlikely. Well, by this time, all the people of Egypt and, and all of Pharaoh's officials are in awe of Moses. And they're in awe of the God of the Israelites. They all want the Israelites to leave. <laughs> okay, it's just a pride thing for the Pharaoh, right? The people are, are ready for him to leave. The, in fact, at the Lord's direction, the Israelites prepare for a long journey and they ask their Egyptian masters for gold, silver, and clothing. And the Egyptians pour it on them. They, they shower them with gifts. Then, at the Lord's direction... Each Israelite household slaughters a lamb and paints its blood on the doorpost of their home. Then they eat their evening meal standing up with everything packed and ready to go, all dressed to go. And at midnight, the Lord passed through Egypt, striking down the firstborn of every family, animal and human both. The firstborn died, but 
he passed over the homes of the Israelites that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. That's why that night in commemoration is called Passover. The firstborn sons in the houses marked with the blood of the lamb were spared. Was it just boys or also boys? Just boys. And a loud wailing was heard across Egypt because there was not a single Egyptian home in which there was not somebody dead. The Egyptians urged the Israelites to hurry up and leave before the Lord wiped the entire Egyptian population out. At this point, the Egyptians didn't care what Pharaoh wanted or didn't want. They wanted those Israelites out of there. And they took matters in their own hand, but it didn't matter. You know why? Because Pharaoh's own son had died. And Pharaoh was ready for them to leave. When they left Egypt, the original <laughs> tribe of 66 had grown to 600,000 men plus women, children, and livestock. The Israelites left Egypt loaded down with silver, gold, and clothing, the great riches God had promised them long ago they would leave with. In fact, God had promised they would be slaves for 400 years and then leave with great riches. We see the great riches part. But how many years have they been in Egypt? Anyone want to place any bets? <laughs> it says in Exodus 12, 40 and 41. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to that very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. And the Lord told the Israelites to remember this day. In Exodus 13, 9, he said, This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. It's like like in, um, what's that Christmas movie where, where the guy who forgets ties the little ribbon on his finger? You know, it's the famous one with Jimmy Stewart on it, in it. Uh, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. You know, the old forgetful uncle kept tying things on his finger so he'd remember to do things. That's what God says. God says, I want you to remember this night, observe this night, have a meal like just like this once a year. I want you to, to pretend like you're traveling. I want you to slaughter a lamb. I want you to tell this story because this is going to be a reminder that the law of the Lord will be on your lips forever. And so every year, Israelites do this even 4,000 years later every year since then for the last 4,000 years the Jews have celebrated that night that night is called Passover and it's worth celebrating as Christians as part of the family of God because it was significant to the Lord this was where the Lord proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was is more powerful than any other power you can bring to him. The Lord made another stipulation at that point, and that was that the firstborn was to belong to the Lord. The animals who were the firstborn were to be sacrificed. There were exceptions where the animal was vital to the survival of the family, in which case they could purchase the animal back. They could redeem him. Okay. And the, obviously firstborn sons were not to be slaughtered. They were to be redeemed. Okay. But the idea was the firstborn belonged to the Lord. Okay. Why did he ask this? He said why he asked it. It's going to sound very familiar. Exodus 13, 14, and 16. Chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. He said, this is why. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. And this is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. 
the commemoration by the redemption of the firstborn meant that not only once a year at Passover would we remember that God bought us back himself, personally bought us back from slavery. But every time we have our first child, every time anybody has a first child, and every time any of our animals have a first, first offspring, we will remember that. Must be pretty important to God for us to remember that he personally bought us out of slavery. And it's not something the Lord wanted to repeat. It had been necessary to do it this time to convince the Israelites of his power and his love for them. It was necessary for the birth of a nation. No longer slaves. The Israelites are now a fledgling nation, a new bride getting ready to know her bridegroom. But at heart, they were still slaves. They were terrified of the Egyptians. And the Lord saw their fear. Exodus 13, 17 and 18. So, God did not lead them on the road to through the Philistine country. And I'm going to show you what they're talking about here. Is that right side up? Yeah. Okay. They're down here in the land of Goshen. Okay. The promised land is right up here. All right. It's that area in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. It's about that big. Okay. Now, the most direct route would be like that, right? Just right along the coastline, straight. No getting lost, follow the coast, you're there. The problem was right down here, right at the entrance to the promised land, the Philistines live. And they are some of the most fierce, the most warrior like, warlike, and vicious, and brutal, and barbaric inhabitants of this entire region. So, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, though that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led people, the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea, which is right here, you know, the whole Suez Canal, um, showed, and um, he had them go down this way and around. And what he's going to do is he's going to have them come up the backside and cross the Jordan into the promised land above where the Philistines are. Okay? So you're going to basically do an end run around the Philistines so they don't have to fight them. Okay? It's not that the Lord was afraid of the Philistines. The Lord was perfectly prepared to drive those Philistines out. But he was afraid... The, the Lord figured the Israelites were just going to cave, okay, if they faced the Philistines. Well, the Lord himself led them as a pillar of cloud in the daytime and as a pillar of fire at night. All they had to do was follow either the cloud or the fire. Of course, Pharaoh reneged again and sent his armies out after the Israelites to bring them back. And he caught the Israelites with their back to the Red Sea. They weren't even really quite out of Egypt yet. The Israelites were utterly defenseless. And here was the moment for God to show them what it meant for him to be their God. I remember our first lesson, we talked a little bit about what does it mean to you for God to be your God. Here's a picture of what that looks like. The Israelites, in their terror, immediately turned on Moses and were ready to surrender. But Moses said, no. Exodus 14 Verses 13 and 14. Moses said, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And that's what it means for the Lord God to be your God. This is how he defends you. Let him do it. Over the next week, think to yourself, who are the Egyptians in your life? What are the Egyptians in your life? What sin has you captive? And then let God rescue you. Let him be, let him be your God. Don't put him in a box. As the Egyptian armies approached, the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them around behind them and stood between the Israelites and the attacking army. And the Red Sea that had them hemmed in parted 
and the Israelites escaped on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to follow them, as you know, the sea closed over the tops of their heads, drowning them all. Exodus 14.31 And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. So the Lord, as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, depending on whether it was day or night, began to lead the Israelites gently to the promised land by the easiest route possible. When they became thirsty, he made water flow from solid rock. When they became hungry, the dew on the ground turned into flakes of bread for them to eat. And they called that manna. Is that also known as algae? <laughs> it's algae in Texas, but <laughs> no, no, it's manna. No, it, it tasted... It tasted good. It says it tasted like a, a kind of a dry cracker or cake made out of coriander seed. So it was in, um, uh, sweetened with honey. It, it, it apparently tasted really good. Um, the manna formed on the ground six days a week, but there was no manna on the seventh day. Every day of the week that the manna was there, if they gathered more than they could eat and stored it till the next day, it would spoil and become maggoty overnight. On the seventh day, they were to gather manna enough for two days. On that one day, every single week, the manna miraculously kept overnight. And they were able to eat it all the next day without it being spoiled. And the Lord did this because he wanted this every seventh day to be a day of rest, holy to the Lord. This, if you notice, is before the Ten Commandments. It's before the law. It, the Lord decreed that every seventh day should be a day of rest at the dawn of creation. It's really important to him that we rest <laughs> and that we remember who it is that gives us life and provides for us. And I don't think the Lord it matters to the Lord which day of the week it is. I think it does matter to him that we rest. And, rem and remember him. Occasionally, the Israelites were attacked. But each time, the Lord caused them to win and defeat their attackers. And it was on this trip that the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments and all the law that went with it. And God promised them his complete protection and blessing. But over and over and over again, he warned them, when you get to the promised land, do not bow down to the gods that are in that land. Don't worship those idols. Don't, don't go with the families to church, you know, to, to the shrines. Don't marry into those families. Don't let those families live here. I, the Lord said, I will drive them out ahead of you. He said, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do it all at once because the wild animals will be too much for you. you. You're not populous enough to take over this whole land. But as you grow, I will drive these people out ahead of you. The problem is there's some sort, always some sort of border or interface between the Israelites and those people. And, he's, and the Lord warns them over and over not to mingle with those people. Don't worship those idols. And he promised if they would do everything he said, um, well, first off, he said that if they let their enemies live in the land with them, it would cause the Israelites to sin. He said, the, the reason I don't want you to, to let these people live with you is because they will make you sin. Because the worship of their gods will be a trap to you. He promised that if they would do everything he said, that their enemies would flee before them. He promised to wipe out sickness from them. They would not get sick. He promised everyone would have a full life span. And he promised there would be no barrenness or miscarriage. You all have studied Revelation. Those promises are remarkably like what we are promised will happen in the millennial kingdom when Christ rules. 
It was also on this trip that the Lord instructed the Israelites to make a traveling temple for worship, and that temple was called a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle was a golden box, called, well, it was a gold-covered box, called an ark. The ark In that ark, they put Aaron's staff that had turned into a snake. They also put a jar of manna in there. And whenever the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud would stop, all the Israelites would stop. They'd set up the tabernacle. They'd camp around it. They'd put the ark in the inmost place of the tabernacle. It was called the Holy of Holies. And the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the, the word for it is Shekinah glory, would settle on the Holy of Holies. And there it would sit. And there the Israelites would sit until the glory of the Lord lifted and moved ahead of them as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. The trip was not without pitfalls. While the Lord was explaining the law to Moses and giving him the Ten Commandments up on, the, on Mount Sinai, the people decided he'd been gone so long he'd either died or he'd gone back to Egypt without them. So they made an idol for themselves to worship. After all this, these people who saw what the Lord did with their very own eyes, saw the Lord's salvation, shoot, Moses is gone. Let's make an idol to worship. And you know why they did that? Because they were still slaves at heart. This is, this is where many Christians are. Many Christians hear the words. They're taught the promises. They can quote them to you chapter and verse, but they're still slaves at heart. And that's what I want to challenge you, is to really examine your heart this week and determine whether you are a slave at heart. Because if you are, you need to go back to the Lord and ask him to set you free. That's what he wants to do. And he will do it. That's what Jesus is in the business of, is redeeming you, ransoming you, buying you back. He paid that price already. And it's yours for the asking. But if you look at your life and you see the fruit of slavery in your life, go back to the Lord. Because he promised he would deliver you. Well, the Lord was really angry with the, with the Israelites, of course, for making that idol. But he didn't destroy them. He, they endured a plague. And afterwards, the Lord reminded them that when they got to the promised land, be sure not to make treaties with people in the land or worship the idols or marry into their families because they would be tempted to forsake the living God and exchange him for a dead one. As always, the Lord was very, very clear about both the great blessings in store for them and the terrible consequences depending on which path they chose. And you can read all about that. And I would encourage you to read Leviticus 26. That chapter, in that chapter, the Lord lays out every blessing and every consequence of the choice they have before them. So, Yahoo, we finally made it. 14 months after they left Egypt, they made it to the Promised Land. They made it to the Jordan River. 14 months the Lord decided the Israelites were about as prepared as they were ever going to be. He had warned them the promised land was full of fierce and warlike people, he, but that he would clear them out. He had prepared them. He had given them, you know, the tabernacle and the rituals and the sacrifices. He had set up their days to give them daily reminders of how powerful he was and how present he was among them. And they could actually physically see him in terms of a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. So, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel was sent in across the Jordan as a spy to explore the land and to bring back some fruit from the land that the Lord said was flowing with milk and honey. So the men explored the land and brought back their samples of the fruit. 
One single bunch of grapes was so large they had to carry it on a pole between them. That's in Numbers 13.23. The land was better and richer than they could ever have imagined. But, just as the Lord had told them, it was full of fierce and warlike people. You know what happened? Israelites totally caved. They wept. They wailed. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They did not think the Lord was going to defend them against this fierce and warlike people. Satan does that to us today. He sets up your sin and says, it's a giant. There's no way you can conquer that. And it's a lie. All we have to do is believe the Lord. Believe the Lord wants to deliver us. And he will do it. It may take time. It may take constant Daily, minute by minute, I believe the Lord choices, you know. But he will do it. The Lord got so angry with the Israelites at this point that he told Moses he was going to wipe them all out and start over with Moses and make a nation out of Moses. Did you know that? Not many people know that. But Moses pleaded for Israel and the Lord relented. But the Lord said he wasn't going to let anybody in the promised land who had seen his miracles in Egypt with their very own eyes and had just now caved and rejected him and disbelieved him. So he said, okay, I won't destroy him, but we're not going into the, into the promised land until all of those people who saw my miracles with their own eyes have died. Their children can go in, but they're not going in. Wasn't there a scout or whatever that? So we could take them? Yes, there were two of the, there, there were 12 men from the, from the um, tribes that were sent in. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said that, yes, we should trust the Lord and go in. And the Lord said, out of all of the people that were in Egypt, those are the only two that are going to go in the promised land. And they did. Pardon me? Not their tribes, just them two? Just them two and the children of the people who were in Israel. So the tribes will go, but the Actual people who were slaves in Egypt and came out, the, the adults, okay, were going to have to die off. Their kids were going to grow up, and the kids were going to be able to go into the promised land. Okay? And the Lord led the Israelites away from the promised land. He led them around in circles in the desert for 40 years until everyone who came, had come out of Egypt had died. But even during that 40 years... The Lord continued to bless and protect and provide for them all, even the ones he was waiting on dying. Okay? He fed them with manna. He kept feeding them with manna. He kept providing them with water. And their shoes didn't even wear out in 40 years. And finally, at the end of 40 years, when all of that generation had died, the Lord brought the 12 tribes of Israel back to the Jordan River, and the Jordan River parted, and they crossed over into the Promised Land on dry land, 